literary things, nerdy things, dorky things, and everything in between. Hosted by Cal Evans and John Martin. Theme song is Good Country People by Brother James. This is a pretty fun episode. It's about science fiction, about futurism, and all things cyber. And now, Caleb. Because it's the future. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Welcome to Rite of Passage. I'm Cal. I'm John. And for all you long-term writer-dyers, all seven of you, I think, at this point, (laughs) most of which are within our own family, we would just like to say this is the season finale of our first season. After this season, we'll be taking a sabbatical, with the exception of one thing that we're going to mention at the end. But then, in 2023, in the new year, we will start up on season two. Now, before we pull this first season in for a conclusion, you want to talk about some of, like, what what your favorite episode was to record, like, over the past year? Um, I think my favorite episode was the uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Oh, yeah. I I think that one was my favorite. I think I'd have to agree with you on that. It was on yeah, that episode, just... we were all firing on all cylinders, like, and we kept unraveling stuff as we talked about it. Like, it wasn't just like, okay, this is what we're going to say, and we'll just go a little bit off or whatever. Like, we, as we were doing the cast, we were finding more and more little instances and nuances as we discussed. Yeah. That was a good one. Like the prototype for what a really good episode of Rite of Passage is. So, also we should probably note that this finale episode, though it is the finale of season one, it's actually part one of a three-part series. The next two will be done in the new year, obviously, but we're going to start us off. We're going to basically give you a beginning at the end of one thing. Right. And ending is a beginning. But it's the beginning of our three-part punk fiction series. Now, you might be wondering, what is punk fiction? And that's where we are going to start off on this particular episode. I will be the expert, and John will be the uh, questioner, the uh, interviewer. So, that's right. All right, let's get get it kicked off. Uh, kind of, like you mentioned, we're going to be talking about punk fiction for this episode and a couple others in next season. So uh, let's talk a little bit about punk fiction, but even zooming out of punk fiction, just the punk as a subculture to modern culture. Uh, what is punk subculture? Where did it come from? How did it get to... How did it get to the United States? Where did punk fiction come from? Uh, and even then, how did it split off into the variety of sub-genres of punk that exist today? So where'd, where'd we come from? Well, technology perspective. Like, you know, stuff like that. But a more accurate description of it compared to something like, you know, sort of like the hippie movement of the 60s or whatever is that it's like the difference between an atheist and an anti-theist, which hmm. still annoying. No one knows the difference between the two. 
<laughs> just like an atheist does not believe in God, but you know, they're all kind of chill about it. They're not going to try and convert you into an atheist. An anti-theist, not only any sort of supernatural reality, those are the kind of people people are typically meeting when they say, oh, atheists are so annoying. No, you're hating anti-theists. The atheist just wants to stay out of your way. And you're going after... It's like a... To kill a mockingbird mm. for, the, for the existence of God. <laughs> but again, we're getting off topic. Basically, punk is a more kind of forward, aggressive version of, you know, that whole, let's stay out on it, peace and love and harmony and all that. Punk is like, nothing is going to happen without action and violence and stuff like that. You can also kind of draw an analogical line between this and uh, the difference between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. But that, again, that also is another can of worms that's sitting freshly in our little fishing stack on the river sticks or whatever the, <laughs> the stream of consciousness. There, we'll go with that. All right, so anyways, how did it all get started? Well... Like many anti-establishment sort of movements, the easiest place to look is probably World War II, which might seem odd to our largely U.S.-based audience since World War II, post-World War II, was sort of like this idyllic kind of American time. I mean, unless, of course, you were a minority of any sort. Huh. But right. if you're coming strictly at it from like a perspective of someone that wasn't redlined, into like whatever you look at the 50s you say hey there's no conflicts we built the interstate a republican president had the highest taxes ever on the upper class which is something really absurd coming from today where people on the right tend to not like putting big taxes on wealthier people but yeah, it's neither here nor there. You think of the 50s, you think of the <laughs> interstate, of course, but then you got, like, your diners and your grease and back to the future, all that stuff. But if you lived in the UK or you lived in Germany or you lived in France, any, any European country, basically, your 50s was kind of a depressing. Like, right. not only because Europe got the brunt of the like damage and collateral damage from World War II. This was the second time something like this had happened in Europe's history in the 20th century because there was World War I. The United States didn't even join that conflict until there was like maybe a year, two years left in the war. And even in World War II, the war had been going on for like two or three years before the U.S. got involved. And it only got involved because of a direct attack on a U.S military base that you know pearl harbor pearl harbor yeah because the u.s was out there producing arms and stuff they were raking in all sorts of money the war machine basically kept paying for itself and its citizens that wasn't really the case in europe so in the uk there are a lot of these like english kids who looked and saw they didn't really have much of a future Plus, there were all of these people in what was 
basically an aristocracy in an official sense, not de facto, like an official aristocracy. And they weren't having any problems and they weren't going to do anything about the problems of the poor at the time. And what do you do when life is treating you terribly and no one seems to hear you? Well, it's like when you ask your parent for something you need and the parent is like, oh, if you ask me politely, I'll give it to you. And he's like, okay, may I please have this? And the person just says, no. At that point, you realize that it's not necessarily about the politeness of what you're saying or the eloquence. It's just that the person talking was using that as a placeholder. So they didn't have to automatically skip to no, but the answer is and will always be no. And if you can't say it like smoothly and politely, and you can't even really moderately yell it clearly and politely, at that point, this is typically when violence starts to appear. And that's kind of what happened with punk. It's kind of hard to say where like punk, especially with music, because that's probably the clearest origin. But if you were to point to one event, I think that was the primary, I believe it was the golden or silver Jubilee, Queen Elizabeth, uh, the band, uh, the Sex Pistols, got on a boat, drove down the Thames, and sang a little ditty that your parents probably were like, oh, how terrible. A little ditty called God Save the Queen. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. A, an entire song basically talking about how useless the monarchy and the figurehead of that monarchy was in actually helping out like British people and with their British problems and whatnot. So Wild. Was there an episode of The Crown that talked about this? I I can't uh, um I've only seen the first season or two, so my parents are really really into the crown. Yeah, it's a good show. The season finale should be soon because the real life season finale kinda yeah. happened a few months ago. Huh. May she rest in peace. I guess so. Queen is dead, long live the king. Whatever. So <laughs> and thus in essence, punk was it was basically the advent of punk, not necessarily the birth, but like the thing that as a result, you had groups like The Clash come in, yeah. uh, the Ramones, in particular, The Clash, including some numbers you know that don't really seem like protest songs, like uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go, which, you know, featured prominently in Stranger Things. Uh <laughs> Of course, one I think that would probably be considered more in that sort of political vein from their album Combat Rock is uh, Rock Bacaspa, which I can't be sure, but I think was in reference to the Iranian hostage crisis or whatever. And it was the lyrics basically were like, Yeah, I am the emir or the leader here, and I don't want to listen to this rock and roll. And then someone plays it and everyone starts dancing in the street saying, hey, this is actually really good. Why are you keeping us from listening to this? As some bigger metaphor for whatever. But yeah. That's the roots of punk in all its forms. Just anti 
whatever the establishment is in whatever genre we're talking about. And since we're talking about fiction, punk fiction is basically fiction that kind of flies in the face of the standard tropes and mores and norms that you would find in that genre, specifically the genre of science fiction is as very uh, optimistic and utopian. Like the future is going to come. We're all going to have flying cars and everything's going to look. Everything's going to be awesome. But it is this that would lead into one of the first major works of cyberpunk fiction, which leads us to the next question John's going to ask. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of got there from music that spilled over into other places in the cold and other types of creation. Other So this week, well, this week, this episode, we're talking specifically about the cyberpunk subgenre or subculture of punk. Okay, let me get Jody off my desk. Okay, let me start that section over. <laughs> okay, so... This episode, we're talking about specifically the subculture of cyberpunk uh, as a variation of the overall tension. That's and my cat's back on my desk. You got it. That's true. Okay, I'm probably just gonna probably just cut all that out in the editing room. So let's go back to the beginning and here we go. Okay, so this episode we're talking about cyberpunk as a subculture of a larger punk subculture. So cyberpunk is, like you mentioned, a branch of science fiction. Um, so why don't you go into what makes cyberpunk special and what does uh what separates cyberpunk from the overall punk genre and how does it use things from its parent genre but how does it separate itself if you want to talk about that some first off we also we need to talk about the conditions that created this particular variety of punk which largely started in the 80s at this time, on one hand, everyone was appearing happy and content and stuff. We had a really strong economy, and the belief was, oh, no, no, it's barding in America. I have a terrible Ronald Reagan impersonation, but yeah. <laughs> Everything was like all the restrictions were off on, like, marketing and stuff like that, which is why you have so many 80s kids shows. They were on the air in that time because they were actually just commercials for products. Because in the past, you couldn't do that in like the 70s, but in the 80s. So we got, you know, the G.I. Joe, like, more memorable Transformers. So, again, these were TV shows to advertise stuff. But along with all of these things being produced and there being this veneer of prosperity... Corporations themselves were getting bigger. And usually the way a corporation gets bigger is through the acquisition of smaller corporations, which 
limits, you know, competition, which can be a true detriment if you're looking at like the ethics of capitalism or whatever. But and we're not going to go into that either. But so it was starting to look like corporations were going to start becoming the real power holders in the United States. And this was even before uh, Citizens United versus FEC, which basically said the corporations were people. Even before that, people in the sci-fi like genre were looking to the future and they're like, this isn't the happy Jetsons future we were promised in like the 50s. It's like there's going to be some people at the top who are super like high tech and can afford all of the brilliant advances of science. And then there's going to be everybody else middle class is going to be essentially gone and everyone's just going to be in this sort of mega slum it's um huh. if you want a really good example on a much larger scale think of the city of uh well, think of the planet of coruscant from star wars up in the air mm-hmm. you got like you have the senate building and you have the jedi temple and you have high class apartments the minute you go down continue to descend you see that even though it's like all future tech and stuff even though technically star wars does that take place in our universe you know what i mean things get worse and worse the little further down you go and so coruscant is kind of like having your cake and eating it too because you spend most of your time in the upper level <laughs> in the films but if you actually go yeah. down even a little bit deeper, you find that it's more like cyberpunk than anything. But yeah, so that that was the fear. Corporations were going to basically become the people that held all the power to the point where all like presidents and kings and whatever, people at the head were just puppets of these corporations. So another big thing that influenced the genre was like right after World War II, Japan was obviously in shambles because of World War II. But immediately after World War II, the United States put a lot of investment into Japan as a as sort of like a buffer to the uh, communist nation to a lesser extent somewhere like China and Vietnam or whatever, especially China. So... Japan's economy exploded and there was a genuine fear that it was either going to catch up with or surpass the United States economy. So in this kind of dystopic future that has been predicted by cyberpunk writers, not only is everything corporate, everything also has at least a hint of Japanese. It's why whenever you watch one of these things like uh, Altered Carbon or something, there's a whole bunch of neon, like, Japanese kanji everywhere. Because in almost always, in this cyberpunk future, the two economic powers are the United States and Japan. And both influence each other very heavily to the point where on the street level, the language was known as an ergot or a made-up language. That's a combination of English and... Uh... So those are the two factors that resulted in the cyber version of, of punk fiction. All right, awesome. Of course, 
we wouldn't have gotten there without the uh, books and the authors that wrote those books. So, uh, right. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, there's a whole lot of you know socioeconomic cultural factors that kind of led towards this direction. So, uh, that resulted in a whole lot of of art being created, like the music that we've already spoken about. Uh, but in terms of a fiction genre, uh, a big part of that was literature. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the writers and works that were paramount to creating uh, the cyberpunk as a sub-genre? All right. Well, remember how in the first part where we talked about the origins of punk in general, and I said that we would be talking about the transition from regular sci-fi to, to punk fiction? Arguably, the person that wrote that sort of transitional work was a man named William Gibson. Most people know him as the guy that wrote Neuromancer, which is considered a seminal work in cyberpunk fiction. In fact, it's getting an Apple Plus adaptation uh, 2023, 2024. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what year it's supposed to come out, but they are working on producing a Neuromancer TV adaptation for, for Apple TV Plus, but I'm not sure what the production and release date are supposed to be. Yeah. And obviously, we don't know how that adaptation is going to work, but we might do some sort of an addendum episode sometime in. Like season two, that's not part of the season, but it's kind of like a side note thingy about, okay, now we've seen the show and how does it stack up with the book and whatever. But anyways, the book or short story, I can't remember which, that I would like to discuss is actually a story called The Gernsback Continuum. First off, a bit of background. The Gernsback Continuum, that title comes from sci-fi writer Otto Gernsback. No, Hugo Gernsback. If you've ever heard of the Hugo Awards in science fiction, it was named after that guy. He was responsible for a lot of the hmm. major like publishing outlets for science fiction stories throughout the United States during the early part of the 20th century. So, during the course of uh, the story, there's this reporter... He's being sent to take pictures of this area in this, like, kind of urban city on the outskirts that has architecture that was, I guess you could say, aspirational. And then it was trying architecture that was trying to be like what old sci-fi writers thought the future was going to be like. So guy goes out to the right. city and sees all the ruins and stuff. But as he's staring yeah. at them, he starts hallucinating and he sees what people in the past thought the future was going to be like, sort of holographically rising up from the ruins. What is the point of all this? The point is that the future, we always look out optimistically for the future and technological advances, and yeah, technology is advancing quicker and quicker as we continue to age as humans. But at the same time, just because it is there doesn't mean you have access to it. That is the key thing about cyberpunk. It is what has often been described in concisely four words. High tech, low life. There's great technology, yeah, but not everyone can afford it. And by not everyone, we mean most of everyone. 
<laughs> Most folks, yeah. Yeah. So that book, at least in my opinion, was the transitionary work that kind of took sci-fi writing from this utopic vision of the future that was all popular in the 50s, which also could be considered a product of its time, and put it in with this cyberpunk future, which from someone who's trying to predict from 1980 whenever, seems a lot more accurate than what we were promised in the 50s and stuff. All right. Of course, not everyone was all into this sort of 50s utopic vision of the future. There was one author during that period of time who was actually quite forward-thinking when you look at it from a perspective of someone who's here in the 21st century. His name was Phil K. Dick. And even though you probably have never heard of the short story, there is a good chance you've probably seen the film based on that short story. The short story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The movie, Blade Runner. Now, in both the short story and yeah. the film, in the future, there's this, you know, standard like evil corporation that manufactures androids. And usually they do, along with doing meal tests on Earth, they also go to off-world colonies and do labor. However, I think either on Earth or in an off-world colony, the AIs gained sentience and there was an uprising. And after the humans, they're kind of like a... Judgment Day, Terminator. Only this time, the uh, the humans managed to take care of the problem, or quote-unquote problem, and every new android that would be produced afterwards would only have a five-year lifespan. So before they could use that sentience to organize and stuff, they'd die, they'd decommission. And furthermore, they were all sent to off-world colonies, so you have an entire, like, space in between Earth and the uh, rogue sentient AIs. And of course the plot of both the short story and the movie is that this guy named Deckard has to go out and hunt down these replicants who are managed to make it to Earth <laughs> with their main objective trying to find a way to live longer than five years. But yeah. I don't want to explain any more about this. This really is a movie you have to watch for yourself. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the best. All right. And um, yeah, speaking of great films like Blade Runner, uh, what are some other notable films or TV shows that kind of opened up in or used the cyberpunk genre as their setting? Uh, obviously, very Blade Runner and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, but what else are we kind of working with and what kinds of what kinds of stories are getting told here? Well, if we're going to talk about film and TV, we actually have quite a bit of stuff here that we can use and talk about. Obviously, Blade Runner. But during the same period of time that Blade Runner came out, which was not coincidentally, the era where cyberpunk really reached its maturation stage, golden age. Mm -hmm. Another movie was put out by a guy named uh, Paul Verhoeven. 
And that movie was RoboCop. It sounds like the cheesiest, lamest movie you could probably watch, especially coming out of the 80s. But actually, it is about something more than just, oh, man who is robot solves crime. It's about this guy, his name's uh, Murphy, Alex Murphy. He's a cop with the Detroit Police Department. And on one of his beats, this guy, Clarence Boddicker, or something like that, basically obliterates him. Not just kills him, like, shoots at him so much that there's, like, nothing left of him. Well, almost nothing. Because what's left of him gets taken to the corporation that's been supplying all of the new technology for the Detroit Police Department. And they combine his mind and his consciousness with that of an android creating RoboCop. If you've ever heard the phrase serve and protect, there's a good chance you've probably seen it most of the time because it was the very first two protocols that RoboCop, or at least his AI side, had to follow, which is serve the people, protect the innocent, and then there was the third one, which, that's a spoiler, so we're not going to talk about the third protocol. <laughs> Seems smart. But yeah, and this sort of future Detroit is, well, it is peak cyberpunk. So that's another one. There's also the classic anime Ghost in the Shell, which is either 90s or 80s. Yeah. And Think of that one as 90s. Yeah. It's a similar sort of dystopic future. And there's this kind of AI that can slip into different bodies if hers has been destroyed. And that's essentially how she goes around conducting business. You know, when the business is like bounty hunting or whatever she does in Ghost in the Shell. Don't watch the remake, though. The remake kind of sucks. <laughs> Go watch the original anime. It will be worth your time. I don't know how good or bad, but just to be safe for now, I'll have to actually watch the dub version to see if the dub's any good, which is the unfortunate problem that people have to deal with when they're going to watch some kind of anime. But that, that is also another topic entirely. <laughs> that is. And what's interesting is that even though these films and these TV shows were at the height of their popularity in the 80s, due to recent economic conditions, especially for me and John's generation, there's been sort of a resurgence of cyberpunk, along with the aforementioned uh, Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. And the, the show Altered Cauldron that I also mentioned, there was a film called Ex Machina, which was yes, done so by good. a known uh, sci-fi director. Well, now he's known. He was kind of unknown then. His name was uh, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. He, he's French-Canadian. And it's a story yeah. about a guy who creates an AI, a sentient AI. And the entire movie is about this sentient AI trying to escape the house of its creator. So actually, let me not talk in a, uh, by Alex Garland. 
Um, he also directed the uh, film adaptation of the Annihilation novel um, by... We'll cut this silence out. Um, yeah, um, Alex Alex Garland directed Annihilation, which was based on the book written by Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, he also directed the Hulu television 2022 horror film called Men. But yeah, that was actually Alex Garland. Uh, Denise Villeneuve was uh, Blade Runner 2049. That's what he directed. Oh, that's right. Uh, as well as Arrival. Uh, those were yeah. those were Denise. Those films. were pre- excellent Arrival. movies. Excellent movies. Just not Ex Machina. <laughs> and, of course, the biggest presence here, I'd probably say, is Neil Blomkamp's Elysium. It's a yeah. cyberpunk yeah. future. Everything sucks, especially where the tip film takes place in future Los Angeles. So instead of yeah. actually trying to fix the world and whatever, all of the wealthiest individuals decided to just create this space station that looks kind of like a halo ring. Yep. And they kind of left Earth to live on this space station called Elysium. And if anyone tries from Earth to get onto Elysium without paying whatever fees they need to on site, Andalusium is about Matt Damon's character who's wearing this kind of a edge of reality type rig because he's paralyzed, trying to get onto, sneak onto Elysium. And that's the whole plot of the yeah. film, but it's a good one. It is a good one. Now, I'm going to briefly mention that the impetus for us moving this episode to the season finale as opposed to, I don't know, doing it in season two, was the release of the TV show Cyberpunk Edge Runners. But I'm going to wait until we talk about yeah. video games to discuss that in more detail. Yeah. Speaking of video games. Speaking of video games, <laughs> uh, Cyberpunk and Redder, Edge Runners uh, was definitely the impetus for pumping this. Uh, particular episode up into the season finale spot um it's an excellent anime uh but you know uh games video games board games tabletop games so um cyberpunk as the name of a franchise is definitely one of the bigger ones probably the most well known now since 2077 uh kind of came out and edge runners came out really increased the profile uh, of that, of the cyberpunk franchise, not cyberpunk, the genre. So spinning off of that, let's talk about games and what kinds of worlds those are, uh, what kinds of cyberpunk worlds are being created by video games, um, since cyberpunk and science fiction kind of you know, are really popular, are really science fiction is a really popular setting for video games. So uh, what kinds of video games are, are going and telling stories in the cyberpunk world? Well, know how we mentioned how cyberpunk as a genre largely started in like the 80s 
Well, the same can be said about tabletop games that deal with cyberpunk themes. And one of the more notable ones that hasn't really been getting the respect and treatment it should is Shadowrun. The thing that makes Shadowrun different from most other cyberpunk-type fictions is that it is sort of a blend of science fiction and fantasy. Basically, there's some sci-fi nonsense that happens and it basically turns the populace of the earth into you know orcs elves dwarves and to top it all off all of the megacorp ceos are dragons because dragons hoard wealth and that's kind right. of what the megacorp ceos do <laughs> true so you're pretty standard uh cyberpunk thing but you have dwarves and orcs and elves and stuff so, they tried to do a game adaptation of that on PC and Xbox 360, but from what I've heard, it was not good. And <laughs> unfortunately, no one has tried to pick up that IP ever since. There was like an NES game or an SNES game in the past, I think, but I know there are no current game developers. AAA or indie that are probably listening to the podcast. But if you happen to stumble upon our podcast, somebody please make a good Shadowrun game. This is what we, as storytellers and at least small, decent fans of sci fi, demand give us a good Shadowrun game. With Warhammer 40k, I like, yes. Most Warhammer 40k games also suck, but recently people have actually put effort into these games and it's, they've basically come full circle back to good again. Like, where was it? Yep, that, that just came out. Probably one of the better Warhammer 40k games that has come out over the 20th century. So if Warhammer yeah. 40k can do it, so can Shadowrun. Rant's over. And, uh... Yeah. <laughs> as we also mentioned, yeah, Cyberpunk, the game. Which, unfortunately, probably where you've probably heard of it in was people mocking it for all of its bugs. And, I'll admit, the footage I've seen from other people have been embarrassingly buggy and even though i didn't really experience any bugs during my playthrough and i was on like a ps4 so i was like a generation before the preferred or the recommended generation which was ps5 mm -hmm. but i didn't experience any problems but that's just a personal me thing i think you got lucky on that one but if you happen to be a person that owns like a PS4 or a PS5 or Xbox One or Xbox Series X slash S or just a really souped up PC, they have fixed all the bugs or most of the bugs. Not only that, yeah, most of them, but the Phantom Liberty DLC here is a big deal getting Keanu Reeves for the main game. Now they're bringing in Andrew Silva. I know that's not exactly like a huge selling point as far as games are concerned, but just to see Keanu Reeves in 
Idris Elba on the same digital screen. It's going to be somewhat entertaining. And yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, and as we stated, one of the big reasons why interest in cyberpunk is kind of kept up is well, I mean, they fixed all the bugs, but then like a month after that patch came a show that they actually announced before the initial launch of the game, an anime called Cyberpunk Edge Runners. It was uh, financed and like distributed by Netflix. CD Projekt Red was heavily involved in its production, and the studio responsible for putting the ink to paper was Studio Trigger. They were the guys behind Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I've heard is pretty neat, but haven't seen. Yeah, that's a popular one. Yeah, Kill La Kill. Which yeah. is the one about how clothing gives you superpowers or not having clothing gives you superpowers. I don't know exactly which way it goes. But I guess it's a kind of a preferred taste kind of anime. But So it's those guys. And regardless of what you think about the clothing aspect of Kill La Kill, the action scenes all go hard regardless of what's going on in the show like and the animation is just so well done with most trigger anime they made a wise choice and cyberpunk did really really well especially considering its main competition if you can call it competition was the highly praised uh arcane which was based also based on a video game property, League of Legends. And Edgeworth didn't come out right after Arcane. It came out a year afterwards. But the fact that Netflix yeah. had two massive hits based upon video game franchises has essentially cracked the code on video game adaptations into movie TV media. A lot of the times, yeah. the reason the yeah. movies failed was because they were trying to fit like a 50, 100 hour experience into two hours. Can't do that. It doesn't work like that, yeah. So, but you can do that with a TV series. And so, ever since, uh, I actually kind of started with Castlevania. So ever since Castlevania kind of kicked it off and Arcane yeah. really blew it up, now there's all these different like animes based on video games. Before uh before Cyberpunk Edge Runners, there was uh Dragon's Dogma, which I heard was not particularly amazing, but the fact that Netflix is willing to finance it in the first place says yeah. quite a bit. And now and then it's on Netflix right now. I haven't started it yet, but there's also now a Dragon Age. Yeah, if you remember Dragon Age, the one where the most recent edition, you became like a high inquisitor and you had like a castle and you could like tell people to go out on missions and stuff. Still haven't finished it, but what, from what I played, it was a good game. I haven't watched the show yet, but I'll probably do that at some point in the following weeks or so. Yeah. But yeah, one with a little bit of a teaser 
first off, of course, for what, what we're going to be. Well, obviously, we have that three-parter episode, the last two parts. But yeah, the big one, the big one, is we're finally doing Shakespeare, baby. <laughs> we're going to discuss the man. We're going to discuss the tragedies and the comedies. Three parts. Actually, we might just get rid of the biography part because that usually just happens when we discuss the content, histories, tragedies, comedies. Yeah. We don't know what order we're doing it in, but y'all getting Shakespeare next year. Yeah, should be good. That's the big one to talk about for the future. And of course, in between season one and season two, we're going to release... Rite of Passage presents a very merry Renaissance Christmas special featuring the families Martin and Evans in which we will have a sort of a Christmas special that we kind of edit together. Yeah. We were considering doing it live, but that had too many complications of getting everybody together that was going to be in the program. That should be out sometime in January. Oh, no, it's not Christmas time, you might say, but historically, Christmas only begins on the 25th. It does not end until the 6th of January. And since we're doing this as a Renaissance Christmas, where Christmas would start on the 25th and end on the 6th, according to the Gregorian calendar, that I think they were using. Because of that, that's when we're going to release it, the special. We're also making it a video episode. And it's largely going to be music because we have a very, very talented set of family between the two, our two families. I mean, the Martins and the Evanses, I mean. And with that, we conclude our very first season Rite of Passage. And from uh, all of us here, John and uh, Junior, wherever Junior is, I don't know, he's probably trying to call his dad or something. Unfortunately, <laughs> psychic ley lines can be kind of sketchy this time of year. So he's gonna have to finagle with that a bit. But from all of us here at Rite of Passage, we wish you a happy holidays. To hand a Merry Christmas, if that's what you're into. And we'll see you at the Christmas Spectacular next month. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks for listening, all. Postscript. As you may have noticed, the date of publishing comes significantly after the time of the holidays that we originally recorded this episode. It just took a little bit longer to produce than we expected, to a myriad of reasons. We appreciate your continued support of the podcast for sticking with us through all the ups and downs. We will be publishing at some point the Christmas special, most likely as a YouTube video, which we'll link to from our personal social media accounts and from the official podcast Twitter account. Stay tuned to check out that Christmas special and the work that some of our beloved family members put into it. Thanks so much for listening. Have a happy new year.